Morning, everyone. Uh, thank you, Gordon. It's kind of been a while. Uh, but before we get back into Second Kings, I want to ask you a few questions. I love questions, as you know. The first question is this, and Gordon has kind of been teasing us out a little bit, but what do you see this morning? What do you see as you look around? And let, let me encourage you to do that just for a second. Take a good look around you for a moment. And what is it that catches your eye? People, yeah? Here's a different question. What have you been dealing with this past week? What issues, what kind of problems, what challenges have you faced since last Sunday? I'm not asking you to shout those out. But we all have. And here's another question. Do you think God cares? Do you think God cares? Please turn with me to to 2 Kings chapter 6. Five weeks ago, that was the last time we were in 2 Kings. Five weeks ago, we read the story of a Syrian commander called Naaman, who was miraculously healed of leprosy, and he was transformed by the grace of God. But in 2 Kings chapter 5, we also read the tragic story of Elisha's servant Gehazi, who got greedy, who lied through his teeth, and ended up getting leprosy. His life transformed by the judgment of God. And the fascinating aspect, or one of the fascinating aspects, is that Naaman was an outsider. He was a Gentile who was brought in. Gehazi was an insider. He was an Israelite who ended up outside, facing abysmal consequences. See, God of amazing grace, and we're going to discover that again this morning, but God of amazing grace, yes, but also God of sobering judgment. And we dishonor God, and we underestimate Him if we go light on either feature. God of grace, God of judgment. So let's read on 2 Kings 6, and as we almost always do, please stand for the public reading of God's Word. The words will be in the screen if you do want to follow along that way, or please, if you have a a copy in front of you, look at it. The company of the prophets said to Elisha, look, the place where we meet with you is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan where each of us can get a pool and let us build a place there for us to meet. And Elisha said, go. Then one of them said, won't you please come with your servants? I will, Elisha replied, and he went with them. And they went to the Jordan and they began to cut down trees. And as one of them was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water. Oh no, my Lord, he cried out, it was borrowed. The man of God asked, where did it fall? And when he showed him the place, Elisha cut a stick and threw it in there. And that made the iron float. Lift it out, he said. Then the man reached out his hand and took it. Verse 8. Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. Very specific. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place 
because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. Well, this enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and he demanded of them, tell me, which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha the prophet, who is in Israel, he tells the king of Israel the very words that you speak in your bedroom. Wow. Go find out where he is, the king ordered, so that I can send men and capture him. The report came back, he's in Dothan. Well, then the king sent horses and chariots and a strong force there, and they went by night and they surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God, of Elisha that is, got up and went out early the next morning, an army of horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? There's a second time that's appeared. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and he saw that the hills were full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. As the enemy came down towards him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike this army with blindness. So God struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. Elisha told him, this is not the road and this is not the city. Follow me and I will lead you to the man you're looking for. And he led them to Samaria. And after they had entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so that they can see. Then the Lord opened their eyes and they looked and there they were inside Samaria. Well, when the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? Do not kill them, Elisha answered. Would you kill those you've captured with your own sword or bow? Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away and they returned to their master. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. Grab a seat. So there, there's, there's two parts to what we just read. So there's part one about a floating axe head. And then there's part two about the ability to see properly. And we're going to take them separately because they are two stand-alone incidents. But the big question is, or certainly one biggie is this, why is part one there at all? I mean, it is such a random, incidental, strange event that appears to have little or no connection to anything else that has gone before or that happens afterwards. It kind of comes from nowhere, doesn't really go anywhere. So why is it here? Well, we passionately believe that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful. So what is it that's going on in the first seven verses of 2 Kings chapter 6? What is the point of it? Well, it's really been interesting this week to read how different people have interpreted it in order to kind of explain it or to give it some Wait. So let me share three alternative approaches to these first seven verses. The first approach is you rationalize it. So in other words, yes, the axe head really did fall into the Jordan, 
But what Elisha did with that stick was he used it to kind of poke and prod the axe head until it moved to a shallower part of the river so that it looked like it was floating and therefore it was able to be recovered. And so for many people, there's just a rational explanation to this trivial incident that you just read about and then you just move on to the really good stuff. The second approach is you moralize it. So the axe head really did fall into the Jordan and it really did miraculously float. But because the axe head didn't actually belong to the person who dropped it because he had borrowed it according to verse five, the moral of this trivial little story is that you should be very, very careful whenever you borrow other people's stuff, right? Thankfully for this guy, Elisha, the miracle worker, was about you mightn't be so lucky. So there's a moral explanation. Or the other moral explanation is don't chop wood near water. But for some, for some people, that, that's the approach they take here. And then, then there is the approach to allegorize it. So the axe head represents the man's soul. The Jordan is the place of judgment and peril. The stick of wood that Elisha throws into the river, well, that represents the cross of Jesus. And therefore, whenever the cross enters the man's situation, and whenever the man reaches out to lift the axe head out, which is an act of faith, the result is a saved soul. So you allegorize it. So here's my question. Which is it? Which approach are you going to take? Well, here's a novel thought. What about just taking it straight? Right? What about simply reading it as it is? No rationalizing, no moralizing, no allegorizing. And if we read it at face value, what might this inconsequential little incident teach us? Well, let me suggest two things. The first is, and this goes back to a couple of the questions I asked at the beginning. The first is this, God is personal and he cares about what's going on in your life. He cares about the issues that you have faced this past week, the challenges, the problems. No matter how small, no matter how insignificant they may seem to you or to others in the grand scheme of things, they register with God and God wants to help. Some random guy who drops the head of a borrowed axe into a river as he works on a building project, that mightn't sound like a situation that deserves God's attention or warrants any airtime whatsoever, but this incident clearly distressed an individual and God intervened. You see, this was a simple and an individual need, but God got involved. And so you know all that stuff that the Bible says about God knowing the very number of hairs in your head? You know that stuff where God says, I know what you need before you even ask me? All that stuff about feeding birds and clothing lilies of the field and therefore being deeply committed to you and highly valuing you? Maybe, just maybe all that stuff's true. Maybe the instruction to cast all your cares, all your cares and burdens on God because he cares for you, maybe that's fact. 
And so based on a rather straightforward reading of these verses, let me remind you that God is personal. God cares about what you've been facing, what you are facing. God is bothered about your worries and your concerns and your problems that you've dealt with this past week and you're dealing with. Your dropped axe head matters. The second thing I want to suggest that we can take from a straight reading of these verses is that God is powerful and more than able to meet your need. More than able to meet you at the point of your need. Nothing is impossible with God or for God. God can step into any situation, demonstrate his power, and bring about changes or reverse circumstances and alter the state of affairs. And a lump of floating iron communicates that reality. God can do anything. Does that mean God will miraculously intervene in every situation that we find ourselves in? No, not necessarily. Although what we interpret as God's miraculous intervention often needs redefined. We miss or we overlook so many God moments in everyday life. But what this incident reveals and discloses is that God can and does work wonders in people's lives. He can and he does transform situations. And if you are in the midst of one of those situations, where like the man in this text, you find yourself crying out, oh no, Lord, what am I going to do? And can I remind you this morning, God cares. God is able. God is personal. God is powerful. That's what I take from that trivial little incident. But let's move on to part two. The ability to see properly. So, you've got the king of Aram. He's an enemy of Israel, and he's out to get the king of Israel. But every time he plans something, the king of Israel receives a tip-off. And the king of Aram is raging, and he's convinced there's a mole in the camp, there's a traitor. Someone in-house is leaking sensitive information to my opponents. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Well, all of his officers, they deny it. They say, it's none of us. It's none of us, but we know the source. So verse 15, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, he's the one telling the king of Israel the very words that you speak in your bedroom. Now, that must have been an incredibly unnerving revelation. How would you feel if you knew that all of us were listening in? There's some people starting to squirm. We're listening in on every word that you speak, that all of us are listening in on every word that you speak in every place where you are. And yet, as the psalmist powerfully reminds us, God knows it all even before a word is on your tongue. Listen, every word you speak is heard. Every single word. And in 2 Kings 6, 
the king of Aram discovers that the prophet of God in Israel, he is the one that is telling the king of Israel everything that he says. And so what does he do? He dispatches this large army, which seems a bit over the top, to go and capture one person. So he dispatches this huge army to go and capture Elisha, who he discovers is in a city called Dotham. And his army surrounds the city of Dotham during nightfall. And whenever Elisha's servant, now not Gehazi, because he's probably off in a leper colony somewhere, but Elisha's new servant, whenever he gets up the next morning and opens the shutters or opens the front door, he sees he's confronted by enemy soldiers, horses, and chariots. And so he cries out in words and in language to the guy who lost the axe head. He says, oh no, my Lord, What shall we do? That's verse 15. You see, based on what he sees, Elisha's servant is terrified. He opens the shutters that morning. He is terrified. The situation looks ominous. Humanly speaking, what he's looking at is frightening. But how Elisha sees it is fascinating. And so Elisha says, two things. In response to this man's cry, oh no, what are we going to do? Elisha says two things. And the first thing he says is a phrase that we come across time and time again in Scripture. Don't be afraid. But that's so much easier said than done. Do you know, when you think about what you've been dealing with this week, What you've been staring at this week? Somebody comes along and says, hey, don't be afraid. It's easier said than done. Especially whenever whatever whatever it is that's staring you in the face is scaring the life out of you. And there are some of you here this morning who are scared. But the truth is we shouldn't be. That is if God's with us. If God really is on our side. Elisha, he he gets this. And therefore he shares it with his servant. Don't be afraid. And maybe as I say, some of us need to hear that this morning. But what Elisha says next is, is maybe even more surprising. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. You see, the servant sees a visible fact They're totally surrounded by an enemy army. Elisha sees an invisible fact. There's another army, a bigger army on their side, which dominates his field of vision and causes his fears to subside. What do you see this morning? The servant can't see it. And so something needs to happen in order for him to open, in order for him to be able to see what Elisha, his master, sees. And the something that needs to happen is he needs to open his eyes in order to catch a glimpse of reality, to gain a fresh insight into the bigger picture. But actually, that's not quite what needs to happen. What needs to happen, the catalyst to seeing properly is what? Verse 17, verse 18, verse 20. Look at it with me. What is the catalyst to seeing properly? It's not just being told to open your eyes. What's the catalyst? 
What does Elisha do? Verse 17. Praise. Praise. Three times in the space of four verses, we read that Elisha prays, and as a result of Elisha praying, eyes are opened, eyes are shut, and eyes are opened again. You see, prayer impacts the ability to see properly. Prayer affects vision so that we become aware of the seen and the unseen. Prayer did not create the armies of heaven. But prayer enabled the servant's eyes to open so that he could see them. The horses, the chariots of fire were always there, but now through prayer he can see them. He can see clearly. The servant can now see what conventional discernment misses. And so the don't be afraid now makes sense because now the servant can see what Alyssa can see. And now this idea of not being afraid, it's validated. It's grounded in reality, unseen reality that is only visible by prayer. And I don't want to make too much of this or more of it than I should, but it strikes me that part of the reason, going back to my opening question, part of the reason that we look around us most of the time and we only see people, we only see the visible, we only see the tangible, we only see the obstacles, we only see the problems, we only see the hurdles, we only see the difficult stuff is because of a lack of prayer. Amen, Olivia. It's because of a lack of prayer. That is why we don't see. Part of the reason that we get scared, we become increasingly and unnecessarily anxious, despite being repeatedly told in Scripture, do not be afraid, do not worry about tomorrow, is the fact that we just don't pray like we should. We don't spend enough time, and I'm speaking to myself, don't spend enough time on our knees, on our own, or with others. Ask, and God, will you open our eyes to see better? Can you open our eyes so that we might see properly, that we might see the bigger picture? And so we look around us, and we only see visible facts, and we're scared, and we're worried, and yet there is an unseen dimension that alters or certainly reframes invisible or visible facts, if only we could see it. You see, in the Garden of Gethsemane, I don't know if I've ever really got this before, but in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter looked around him, and all he saw was a bunch of problems that led him to draw his sword and start lashing out, cutting off ears. What did Jesus do? Jesus quickly rebuked him and reminded Peter of the bigger picture. There are 12 legions of angels at my disposal. And if I was to call on my father, if I was to pray, they would be unleashed. And the fact that Jesus didn't ask the father to unleash those legions of angels was to do with his submission to the Father's will. But the other fact we often miss in this incident is the reality of angel armies always by our side. They were there, irrespective of whether Peter or the Romans saw them or not. The God of angel armies is always by 
your side. And if you want to make sure you do not miss the reality of that, prioritize prayer. On your own and with others. On your own and with others. It's not the first time in Kings that we've come across the reality of angel armies. If you've been following this entire series, back in 1 Kings 18, Elijah uses a name for God that appears 261 times in Scripture. We actually read it this morning at the very start in Psalm 95. Here it is. The Lord of hosts. And hosts means or is a reference to the armies of heaven. And therefore in 1 Kings 18, Elijah was declaring and affirming that the Lord is the God of angel armies. And although we may not see them this morning with the naked eye, they are an invisible fact. And through prayer, we can open our eyes and catch a fresh glimpse of reality. And so if you're struggling to see them this morning, if you're struggling to see properly this morning, if you're here this morning and you're scared and you're worried and you're anxious, then pray. Pray to God that he would open your eyes. Not that you might have confidence, by the way, in angel armies, but so that you might have confidence in and know the reality of the God of angel armies who's always by your side. That's the critical bit. We're not preoccupied with the I mean, some people go off on one with the angels and all that. Don't get preoccupied with the angel armies. But be inspired to know they are there. And the God of angel armies is always by your side. Well, we're going to finish. Because how the story finishes fascinates me in 2 Kings 6. And this is where we return to the subject of God's grace. You see, during the time that the enemy were blinded, do you remember whenever, whenever Elisha asked God to blind the Aramean army? They're blinded and they can't see properly. And remember, that was as a result of prayer. Prayer affects vision. Well, Elisha, this is brilliant. Elisha says, tell you what, see, see the way you can't see anything. I lead you to the man you're hunting for as in himself. And so the enemy takes up the offer because they can't see. But all Elisha does is he leads them to Samaria. He leads them into Israelite territory. He leads them into an incredibly vulnerable position. And when they open their eyes, which again happens via prayer, verse 20, Aram's army realize that they're now sitting ducks. And so the king of Israel can't believe his eyes. He can't believe his luck. And so he asks an obvious question. He says, Elisha, can I kill them? Like, like, shall I kill them now? But what ha happens next is remarkable because instead of a massacre, there's a feast. Instead of a bloodbath, there's a banquet. And Elisha prepares a table for his enemies and they enjoy a cracking feed together before they are sent back to their master, to the king of Aram. And the story ends, this story ends with an account of amazing grace and genuine hope. The Arameans had expected to die, but instead they are spared by their enemy and sent home well fed. That is grace. And the question I want to ask is, I wonder were their eyes open to the reality of what just happened? I mean, they knew they deserved to die. They probably expected to die. 
But instead, they find themselves on the receiving end of God's outrageous grace and merciful provision. Did they see that? Could they see that? And you know something? Every single week, and we've done it again this morning, we sit at this table to remember that while we were still God's enemies, Gordon reminded us of this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the question is, do you and I see that clearly? And the result of grace in 2 Kings 6, verse 23, this is how it finishes. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. It seems that having experienced grace, they chose to show some. And you know, maybe that's another possible challenge as we leave here today. That having experienced the grace of God in our lives, none of us deserve this. None of us deserve to sit at God's table. But he shows us outrageous grace. And then the question is, am I going to go and show grace to others? Or not? So, here are five takeaways from this morning. God's personal, and God cares about your dropped axe head. Whatever is going on in your world, God is interested Secondly, God is powerful. He can change situations. He can reverse states of affair. He can transform circumstances. And a floating axe head proves it. Thirdly, God wants us to open our eyes and see properly. And the key to open eyes is prayer. Will you join us this Wednesday night to pray? Fourthly, therefore... Therefore, don't be afraid, for angel armies are an invisible fact. And finally, thank God for his amazing grace. Even his enemies find mercy when they expect judgment. And let's just go and show some grace this week. Amen.